So we're going to continue our study this morning in the book of Lamentations into chapter 2. And this is on the second part of this, this poem and this kind of funeral dirge as Jeremiah is mourning the destruction of the city of Jerusalem. And what we see here is that Jerusalem realizes that it's God who is bringing this judgment. It's God who is punishing. And of course God is always just in the, the judgments he brings. Uh, you can see the way the, the chapter is broken down. This is kind of one way of, of breaking it down. Uh, you see it here. Um, but let's just start to jump straight into the text. There's so much to see here this morning. I'm sure this will speak to our hearts in various ways. First, we read then verse 1 of Lamentations chapter 2. How has the Lord covered the daughter of Zion with a cloud in his anger and cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel? And remembered not his footstool in the day of his anger. That, that reference to Jerusalem being as a footstool. It's kind of the place where the Lord would come and rest and put up his feet. But no longer is Jerusalem that place. No longer is it that place of peace and beauty. Again, notice, it's cast down from heaven unto the earth the beauty of Israel. We said last week, you know, the way that if you're walking with the Lord, there's something about your countenance, there's something about your face that people see. But that's all gone now because of the sin of Israel. Sin just has this incredible destroying effect on everything. And Israel were not unfamiliar with clouds. Of course, they've been led by a cloud in the wilderness for 38 years as they wandered from Sinai into the promised land. But that was very different to this cloud. That cloud was the Holy Spirit who was leading them and guiding them. It was a cloud by day and, of course, that pillar of fire by night. But this is a totally different type of cloud. This is is a dark cloud. You know, you see it here in the skies. You know, when the storm's coming, the skies just go black. And and you know a storm's coming. Israel now recognizing that the Lord is bringing this upon them. Verse 2, And the Lord has swallowed up all the inhabitants of Jacob. And has not pitied. He's thrown down in his wrath the strongholds of the daughter of Judah. He's brought them down to the ground and has polluted the kingdom and the princes thereof. So this was the place that the Lord had chosen to rest in. Yeah, but we need to realize here that his wrath is as real as his grace. You know, the world loves to try and paint this picture of God, that God is a lovely, kind of fluffy, embrace everybody, cuddle everybody kind of thing. And and that heaven's going to be just for everybody. That's not the way it is. God is holy. And the problem is we have such a, a, a shallow understanding of what holiness is. But God is holy and we're not holy. And this is the, the problem. This is what grace has solved, this problem between us and God. We go into verse 3 and it says, And he has cut off in his fierce anger all the horn of Israel. He has drawn back his right hand from before the enemy. You see, up until now, Israel had always had that protection from the Lord. But now he's drawn back his right hand rather than being effectively ready to smite the enemy. Now the Lord is not doing so. And now Israel's enemies are, are prospering as a result of this. You see, sin has a, this incredible effect. Not only does it bring weakness and, and destroy us, but it also seems to strengthen those that are against us. The enemy and so is burned against Jacob like a flaming fire, which devours round about. See, the, the, the cloud and the fire that they'd known have been turned into something totally different. It's still a cloud, but a cloud, a storm cloud. And now that, that flaming fire that had led them at night now is a flaming fire that's devouring round about. Jeremiah, as you said last week, sitting down somewhere we, we, we understand uh, round about the area of Golgotha, Calvary, looking down upon the city as it's burning, seeing the flames as Nebuchadnezzar's armies have come in and set the place ablaze and destroying everything. Verse 4 says, And he's bent his bow like an enemy. 
He stood with his right hand as an adversary. God isn't an enemy. He's not an adversary. But it seems like that now to Israel. He's like an enemy. He's bringing this destruction as if an adversary were doing this. And slew all that were pleasant to the eye in the tabernacle of the daughter of Zion. He poured out his fury like fire. Now first of all, we see that reference there to the, he's cut off his fierce, uh, in his fierce anger the horn of Israel. Speaking of the strength, you think of a, an ox or a creature like that. The idea of the, the horn here being symbolic of the strength of Israel. That's, that's all gone. This is what sin does. We talked a lot last time and we'll, we'll be speaking more of the effect that sin has and what it's done here. Sin takes away our strength. You know, it promises to give us so much. It promises blessing and enjoyment and peace and fulfillment and whatever else. You all know you've all been there. You know what temptation's like. And temptation, of course, seems pleasant. It seems to be something that's going to enrich your life. But all it does is take away. You know, the incredible thing is that we don't somehow retain this. We read this, we understand it in in our heads, but it doesn't seem to impact our hearts. And we need to continually be reminded of the effect of sin, that sin will, well, it will root out all our increase. Again, he's drawn back his right hand from before the enemies. We just said a moment ago, you know, all through their history, the Lord had promised to fight for Israel. You know, the Lord spoke of... One Jew putting a thousand or ten thousand of the enemy to flight. But no longer. Now Israel's sin has had the effect of removing God's protection from upon them. Psalm 66 verse 18 is a scripture you need to memorize and, and take to heart because it says, If I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. It's a scary scripture, but it's a really true statement that, that God is such a holy God. It's not that God cannot hear, but it's the Lord will not allow that which is unholy into his presence. And if we regard iniquity in our hearts, and then we try and go before the throne, it's almost as if you see with Eden, the cherubim standing there guarding the way. They won't let us into God's presence. Because until we confess our sin, until there's atonement for sin, we can't come before the throne of a holy God. Again, it's like an enemy. You know, and the wrath of God is worse than the affliction of an enemy. Because you understand why an enemy would do these things, but they're struggling to try and get their heads around, and Jeremiah particularly, this destruction that's come upon them. That God has allowed this. And yet, we see a number of times through this book, the statement that God is righteous in doing what he's doing. And then we have this reference. We've seen this already a number of times to the daughter of Zion. Jerusalem is pictured here as a daughter. I can relate to this. I have three daughters. I know how much I love them. And I know how much it grieves me when I come home from work and I want to give them a a cuddle and find out what they've done through the day and laugh and play with them. But if one of them has been naughty, I mean, imagine that could happen, you know, from time to time. It's horrible when instead of putting my arms around them, cuddling them, I have to discipline them. That's really hard as a father. And God, in the same kind of relationship here, looking at Jerusalem, in fact, we find 18 times in the book of Lamentations, God speaks of Jerusalem as a daughter. You know that kind of thing that parents say when they discipline you, and they say, this is going to hurt me more than it hurts you. And as a child, you think, yeah, right. (laughs) But as an adult, as a parent, you realize that it does. But we know that we have to discipline our children. If we don't discipline our children, actually, probably we don't love them. We discipline them because we love them. Because we want to guide them. And we want them to walk in a right and true way. We know that there's things in this world that will be a danger to them. Hebrews says that we had 
fathers of our flesh which corrected us and we gave them reverence. Shall we not much rather be in subjection unto the Father of spirits and live? For they verily, for a few days, chastened us after their own pleasure, but he for our profit, that we may be partakers of his holiness. You see, that's what God's after. But First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 1 tells us that it's sanctification is God's will for us. I've said it before that, you know, if you ever are in a position and you say, wonder what God's will is, well, it's sanctification. It's, it's really simple. God just wants to set you apart from him, for him. To set you apart from the things of this world so he can have you for himself. That's what God wants. That's his desire. And God will allow sometimes things into our life that we don't enjoy, but for the purpose of bringing us this place where we can be holy. Hebrews carries on and says that no chastening for the present seems to be joyous. We don't enjoy it. Of course we don't. But grievous, nevertheless, afterwards it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness unto them which are exercised thereby. Again, God just speaking of Jerusalem as his daughter. And you start to realize that God isn't enjoying this process. Verse 5 says, The Lord was as an enemy. He swallowed up Israel and he's swallowed up all her palaces. He's destroyed his strongholds. You see, this is all his. Now, this, the, the language here. This is, this is God's city. The place that he'd chosen to put his name. And he, he has destroyed his strongholds. And he's increased in the daughter of Judah. Mourning and lamentation. It's the title of our book. And has finally taken away his tabernacle. As if it were of a garden. And has destroyed his places of the assembly. The Lord has caused the solemn feast and the Sabbath to be forgotten in Zion and has despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. You know, it's easy to become very complacent with the blessings that we have and to take them for granted. And, and not realize that those blessings are actually truly blessings from God. And, you know, and we can allow temptation to come in to rob us of these things. And then suddenly we're brought face to face with the reality of exactly what God does for us. You know, I do think that sometimes the Lord allows us just to catch a glimpse of what our lives would be like without him. Sometimes maybe in the midst of temptation, maybe even when we've yielded to temptation, the Lord just allows us a glimpse of what our lives would be like without his grace. And it's scary. Notice also here, he speaks of the, the solemn feasts and the Sabbaths again being forgotten. You know, these were these feasts every year that would be such a joyful celebration that the Jews would come up to Jerusalem and they would celebrate. None of that's happening now. Nobody wants to go anywhere near this city. And notice, and he's despised in the indignation of his anger the king and the priest. Oh, well, it's no surprise when we look in the book of Jeremiah itself. We actually read there in Jeremiah 2 verse 8, the priest said not, where is the Lord? They stopped inquiring after God. And the, probably the worst part of all this is, and they that handle the law knew me not. The pastors also transgressed against me, and the prophets prophesied by Baal and walked after things that do not profit. The priests in Israel had stopped seeking God, and they put his word to one side. Does that sound just a little bit like the church today in some respects? Some of the things that we hear, some of the things we see. You know, sadly, there are many priests, there are many ministers, vicars, clergy, whatever title you want to give them. I don't seek after God. It's their job to, to teach and to reveal God's word to the people, but they don't. Many of them don't even trust or believe God's word themselves. Notice again... God has despised in the indignation of his anger. These are very strong words. The king and the priest. Now the kings, we could talk a lot about the kings of Israel and the way that they just wickedly went away from God. There were some good kings, but not many. But almost with a king, you can kind of understand with all the wealth and all the 
servants they have and everything they, that they have around them, the temptation. But the priests, surely these are the ones that should know God, to seek God. They should be the one trying to keep the king on the straight path. And yet the priests in Israel at this time have been the ones that have actually led the king astray as well. There's another verse in Jeremiah 8 verse 9. It says, The wise men are ashamed. They are dismayed and taken. Lo, they have rejected the word of the Lord and what wisdom is in them. You see, when we reject God's word, there's nothing left. There is no wisdom in and of ourselves. You know, if we're trying to serve God's people, we do it according to his word, not according to our own wisdom because our own wisdom is just foolishness. Verse 7, The Lord has cast off his altar. This is incredible. If you've, I, I hope you are reading through the Bible in a year, and, and things. if you are, you're probably around about Exodus at this point, and I, I'm personally just going through looking at the, the tabernacle and the instructions that the Lord gave to Moses as to what to build and these artisans that the Lord used to, to create and make all these things. And the, this morning I was reading about this altar. This was something to be so holy. Yeah, there, there was two altars. There was... There was the brazen altar outside, the altar of incense. You know, once a year, the high priest was to go in and offer on this altar in the Holy of Holies. This was to be a holy thing to God. And now God himself says, well, through Jeremiah, the Lord has cast off his altar. He's aboard his sanctuary. Again, all the priests and that have said, this won't happen. He's given up into the hand of the enemy the walls of the palaces. And they have made a noise in the house of the Lord as in the day of a solemn feast. There's the lamenting, there's the wailing, crying. And the Lord has purposed to destroy the wall of the daughter of Zion. He stretched out a line and he's not withdrawn his hand from destroying. Therefore, he made the rampart and a wall to lament. They languished together. It's just interesting language that's given to us there. Speaking of the walls of the city, but it speaks specifically here. He's made the rampart and the wall. God has made the wall to cry. And, of course, today you'll recognize in Israel the western wall. Some people refer to it as the wailing wall. And it's called that for a number of reasons. Of course, because the Jews will come here and they will mourn and they will cry. But also because this is limestone rock, and the rock itself being, it, it, it weeps. Interestingly, Ezra 9.9 says this, For we were bondmen, yet our God has not forsaken us in our bondage. And this is later on than we're studying this morning, this is after Lamentations, this is after he's sort of been taken away captive. But he says, God has not forsaken us in our bondage, but has extended mercy unto us in the sight of the kings of Persia. Because later it will be the kings of Persia that will allow Israel to return home. And he says, to give us a reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair the desolations thereof. Now, of course, this actually finally happens under Artaxerxes Longimanus in about 445 BC, finally permission is given we read in Nehemiah chapter 2 to go and restore the city but he goes on to repair the desolation thereof and to give us a wall in Judah and in Jerusalem now in the context of course he's talking about the, the walls of the city but isn't it interesting that God has given them a wall at the moment that's all they do have that wall carries on beyond that which you can see. That's the visible part of the wall and actually goes down under the ground level, much deeper than that. But that's part of the remains of the, outs- the, out- the outskirts of the, the temple area. Her gates are sunk into the ground. And that's interesting as well, just from an archaeological perspective. So much of the old city is underground. And it's amazing what archaeology is discovering of what was there before in the time of these kings, in the time of David and afterwards. Her gates are sunk into the ground. He has destroyed and broken her bars. Her king and her princes are among the Gentiles. They were forced to flee, forced to leave the land. Zedekiah, such a tragic 
situation. He was the final king at the time of this siege. And we have a couple of prophecies in Jeremiah, but one of them tells us that he'll be taken to Babylon. There's another prophecy that says he won't see Babylon. Now, at first glance, it looks like a contradiction until you realize that he was taken to Babylon, but before he got there, the men of Nebuchadnezzar took him, they killed his children, his sons, in front of his eyes, and then they took out his eyes. So he never got to see Babylon. But he did go to Babylon. Those prophecies are very precise. God bringing judgment, as he said he would, because of the iniquity of these kings that were leading the whole nation astray. The king and the princes are among the Gentiles, and the law is no more. They've forgotten God's word. Her prophets also find no vision from the Lord. Well, we're told in Proverbs 29 verse 18 that where there's no vision, the people perish. Without God's word, there won't be vision. There won't be any hope. There won't be any understanding of what is to come. The elders of the daughter, again, this relationship, the daughter of Zion sit upon the ground and keep silence. They have cast up dust upon their heads. They have girded themselves with sackcloth. Even this. This is the elders. And they're told now that they keep silent. These are the ones who have been saying to Jeremiah for 40 or so years, oh, you're wrong. Please, Jeremiah, be quiet. Stop talking about judgment. God's not going to do that. This is his city. This is Jerusalem. Now, they're sat in silence. There's nothing they can say. Humiliated. How is it going to be for those that reject God now? When we get to that time of tribulation and they realize that it's all true. That God really is God. That Jesus is the one in whose name is salvation. Well, we read in the book of Revelation in chapter 6 how people are going to try and hide themselves from God's wrath. They'll be so ashamed. These elders of the city, they should have known better. They should have listened to Jeremiah. And to the prophets before Jeremiah. But now they keep silent. They've cast dust upon their heads and they've girded themselves with sackcloth. We told the virgins of Jerusalem hang down their heads to the ground. All their hopes for the future, the hopes of finding a spouse, are just disappearing now. You know, future with God is wonderful, future without God is terrifying. My eyes do fail with tears. My bowels are troubled. (laughs) My liver is poured out upon the earth. How poetic is that? For the destruction of the daughter of my people. It's interesting. We we kind of understand bowels. We understand the tears. But just the liver bit. I I was curious. And probably some of you may know this already. But I just just looked to see what the liver actually does. And we're told that with the help of vitamin K, the liver produces proteins that are important in blood clotting. It's also one of the organs that break down Old or damaged blood cells. The liver plays a central role in all metabolic processes in the body. In fact, metabolism, the liver cells break down fats and produce energy. You know, in in a real way, all of that is disappearing from Jerusalem. The natural process is breaking down. Jeremiah is using very graphic language, but I think chosen wisely with the words he's using here. He says the major functions of the liver are bioproduction. Bile helps the small intestine break down and absorb fats and so on. And of course, bile being something that's very bitter. And for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Because the children and the suckling swoon in the streets of the city, they say to their mothers, where is corn and wine? Where's the food? These children looking to their parents for, for guidance, for leadership, for food. Sadly, the parents don't have the answer. You know, it's a real grief of heart and mind when you think of these young children today. You know, you know, we hear it when occasionally I get opportunity to come and bring girls to school. And you hear the language from some of these children that are running into the school and just behind them there's their parents with language that's just as bad. And you think these children are growing up in these kind of families, in these environments, and 
you know, they will be the next generation and how are they going to bring up their children? You know, you just... Where's the corn? Where's the wine? When they swooned as the wounded in the streets of the city, when their soul was poured out into their mother's bosom. Just not knowing where to turn. They've never been given instruction. They've never been told about God. They don't know where to go or what to do. It just emphasizes the importance, the important role that parents have in children's lives. What thing shall I take to witness for thee? What thing shall I liken to thee, O daughter of Jerusalem? What shall I equal to thee? What uh, so that I may comfort thee, O virgin daughter of Zion? For thy breach is great like the sea. Who can heal thee? Thy prophets have seen vain and foolish things for thee, and they have not discovered thine iniquity to turn away thy captivity, but have seen for thee false burdens and causes of banishment. You see, what it's saying here, this is interesting, that they've not discovered, not uncovered the reason for your sin. They've not made it known to you. You see, what they've done instead is come up with other reasons. Just, but they've seen for the false burdens. In other words, they've said, well, this isn't because of God's judgment. This is just purely because of Nebuchadnezzar or because the Babylonians are a horrible people or whatever else. They've tried to remove the personal responsibility. They've tried to take away the, the reality of the fact that sin has caused this problem. No, 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 it's not because you've done anything wrong. I remember some large famous church in America, a few years back now, was just talking about things. It was talking about Madonna in, in, in this context. And he said that Madonna doesn't have a sin problem, it's a self-esteem problem. Yeah, I, I said it's just it, indicative of the the way that so many in the church are going. They, they come up with another reason for the problems, rather than saying, you know, it's sin. Sin is the reason there are so many problems. Sin is the reason the world is in the mess that it's in. And the church and those that know best should know better. Invent all sorts of other reasons so that people won't be offended. Because if we talk about sin, it's a bit harsh. It's you know. People don't like to be told they're sinners. You know, when the priests and the prophets can't expose sin, they no longer have any value. See, those that teach and explain God's word need to allow the light of God's word to expose sin. Otherwise, there can't be any growth. You know, I think this book is truly wonderful because it does put such a focus on just how, how abhorrent sin really is to God. All that pass by clap their hands at thee. They hiss and wag their head at the daughters of Jerusalem. It kind of creates that kind of picture of almost like pantomime type thing, doesn't it? They're clapping their hands, they're hissing and they're wagging their heads. You know, they're like, ooh, Jerusalem, look. But that's exactly what was going on. Jerusalem had become... Something that the nations around would laugh at. And notice what they say. Is this the city that men call the perfection of beauty? The joy of the whole earth? Do you remember last week we looked at that scripture? It comes from Psalm 40, 48 verse 2. Speaking of Jerusalem as being the city of the great king. The joy of the whole earth. And they're saying, Jerusalem, the joy of the whole earth. You know, the world loves nothing more than to see the righteous stumble and to laugh and to mock. All thy enemies have opened their mouth against thee. They hiss and gnash the teeth. They say, we have swallowed up. Certainly this is the day that we looked for. We have found and we have seen it. You see, the enemies wanted Jerusalem destroyed, just as they do today. No change. In some two and a half thousand years Nothing has changed. The world is still looking on, wanting Jerusalem, wanting Israel destroyed. And every time there's any, any time Israel do something, immediately they are the villains. We've seen it again in the last few days. The Lord has done that which he had devised. He has fulfilled his word. Notice this, that God is faithful. God has made these promises. You know, God had promised blessings and judgment. And he keeps both. 
He fulfilled his word that he committed in the days of old. This is not something that's new. It's not something that's just suddenly come upon them. This has been prophesied way back. He is thrown down. He is not pitied. He has caused thine enemy to rejoice over thee. He has set up the horn of thine adversaries. See, Israel has decreased in strength. The adversaries have increased in strength. Their heart cried unto the Lord, O wall of the daughter of Zion. Let tears run down like a river. Day and night, give thyself no rest. Let not the apple of thy eye cease. Arise, cry out in the night, in the beginning of the watches. Pour out thine heart like water before the face of the Lord. Lift up thine hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. This is a prayer now. Pray, cry out to God. At the beginning of the night watches, when they get to the evening and they have these various watches through the night where the sentries would typically stand guard and watch and protect the city. Right at the beginning of that, let's just pray. And pray for the children. Lift up thy hands toward him for the life of thy young children that faint for hunger in the top of every street. On Tuesday evening at prayer meeting, those that can make it, I want to spend the evening praying for our children. Jeremiah here recording and putting into words just how important it is to be praying. These children were facing destruction without the grace of God. And it's no different today. Our children will face God's wrath without his grace. And we praise him for his grace. We thank him that a number of those within the fellowship are saved. And we'll pray, continue to pray for the rest of them. But there's many other children of the people of the fellowship here that don't yet know the Lord. I wanted you to use Tuesday night in the light of what we're reading here just to come before the Lord and to pray by name for as many as we can just to bring them before the Lord. Behold, O Lord, and consider to whom hast thou done this? Notice, shall the woman eat their fruit? It had been prophesied that the siege in Jerusalem was going to become so severe they would end up eating their children. Isn't that horrible? Can't imagine something as vile as that. And yet, I remember going to Yad Vashem, the Holocaust Museum in Jerusalem, and reading stories of women that had killed their own children so that the Nazis would not get them. And you start to realize just how desperate a situation that would have been that a, a mother that loved her child so much would choose to put their own child to death rather than let the Nazis get hold of their child. It goes on and says, and children of a long span. In other words, saying here that the children are not living the full span of life they should. He says, shall the priests and the prophets be slain in the sanctuary of the Lord? This is what's happening now in Jerusalem. The young and the old lie on the ground in the streets. It's just carnage everywhere. We've seen war scenes. We're familiar with those things on our TV sets now. This is what Jeremiah is looking down on Calvary, looking upon. My virgins and my young men are fallen by the sword. Thou hast slain them in the day of thine anger. Thou hast killed and not pitied. But, but just again, remember that we're not talking about innocent people here. We're talking about people that had indulged in all sorts of horrible practices. Sorcery and witchcraft and idolatry. All sorts of sexual practices and even offering their children to Molech in the fire. And horrible things. And God is bringing judgment because of these things. Thou hast called as in a solemn day my terrors round about so that in the day of the Lord's anger none escaped, none remained. See, God is thorough. Nobody's going to escape God's wrath. Those that I have swallowed and brought up has my enemy consumed. Now, we've said already that the book of Lamentations is split into this um, memory uh, pattern where the, each is an acrostic. So each verse begins with a different letter in the Hebrew alphabet. So chapter 1 is 22 verses, chapter 2, 22 verses. As we go into chapter 23, sorry, chapter 3, there's 66 verses. And what we see here is that each of the verses 
begin with a, each of three verses begin with a Hebrew letter. I'll show you as we go through it in just a moment. But again, this is to be remembered. And before we go in, I just want to read this from 2 Corinthians. It says, Blessed be God, even the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies, and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our tribulation, that we may be able to comfort them which are in any trouble. And by the comfort wherewith we ourselves are comforted of God. For as the sufferings of Christ abound in us, so our consolation also abounds in Christ. You see, Christ grieves for this world that has turned its back on him. And we also should grieve for this world. As Jeremiah is looking upon his people and grieving, I pray that God will work in our hearts to give us this kind of compassion for the lost. And whether we be afflicted, it is for your consolation, as Paul speaking to the Corinthians, and salvation, which is effectual in the enduring of the same sufferings which we also suffer. Or whether we be comforted, comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And our hope of you is steadfast. Knowing that as you are partakers of the sufferings, so shall you also be of the consolation. In 1 Peter chapter 4 it says, But rejoice in as much as you are partakers of Christ's sufferings. You know, we're invited to join Christ in that which he suffers. Not, not in terms of suffering for sin. Christ alone did that. This is that when his glory shall be revealed, you may be glad also with exceeding joy. The Bible also speaks about joy when we are caught up into the presence of the Lord and we'll look around us and we'll see those who have responded to the gospel on account of our testimony. In fact, the Bible speaks about a crown of joy being given to those who have witnessed, who have brought others to know him. It is if you be reproached for the name of Christ, happy are you, for the spirit of glory of God rests upon you. You see, I believe we should have a real compassion for those that as yet don't yet know the Lord. So the first of these verses, or the first group here, are all under the Hebrew letter, the first letter in the Hebrew alphabet, Aleph. Like our equivalent to our letter A. And by the way, this is where we get alphabet from. The second letter of the Hebrew alphabet being Bet, Aleph, Bet. That's where we get alphabet from. And of course, we have aids to memory for our alphabet. Well, this is typically an aid to memory. And even incredible that children would have used this to help them to learn the alphabet, the Hebrew alphabet. You know, if, if we impress this upon our children, the danger of sin, the destruction that sin brings. Can you imagine a Jewish child going through this, reading this, knowing of Jerusalem, And realizing the danger of walking out of step with God. It starts off, Jeremiah now, is, this is very personal. Jeremiah joining God in this suffering. In a sense, understanding God's heart for these people and for what's happening. Jeremiah personally experiencing these things. He says, I am the man that has seen affliction by the rod of his wrath. He has led me and brought me into darkness, but not into light. Surely against me is he turned. He turned his hand against me all the day. This is what Jeremiah is saying. This is exactly how he feels. That God has, in essence, turned away from him. Turned away from Jerusalem. And Jeremiah is joining in the pain of his people. My flesh and my skin has he made old. He has broken my bones. He has builded against me, encompassed me with gall and travail. He has set me in dark places as they that be dead of old. It's very graphic, but the third group of three verses, Gimel in the Hebrew. He has hedged me about. You know, you can't run and escape God when it comes to God's wrath. People have this strange notion that they're going to be able to get away from God or to avoid judgment somehow. Or that they'll be able to come up with some cunning reason why they did what they did and actually gobble let them off. No, no, no. He has hedged me about that I cannot get out. 
This is what it's going to be like for those that go into the tribulation. They won't be able to escape God's wrath. He says, he has made my chain heavy. Also, when I cry and shout, he shuts out my prayer. Yeah, we said earlier, Psalm 66, verse 18. That God won't hear if we regard iniquity in our hearts. And there were times during the book of Jeremiah that God told Jeremiah not to pray for the people. I don't want to hear those prayers effectively. You know, when we pray, we need to pray in accordance with God's will. But Jeremiah says, he shuts out my prayer. He has enclosed my ways with hewn stone. I've been blocked in. You know, if you've been to Israel and you've seen these hewn stones, these great big limestone chunks of stone, effectively you're blocked in. And he's made my paths crooked. Again, Psalm 66, verse 18, as I said. But we go on. The fourth letter, Dalit in the Hebrew, equivalent to our, our D, effectively. And he was unto me as a bear lying in wait, and as a lion in secret places. You know, it, it gets to the stage. I mean, Proverbs 26, 13 says, The slothful man says, There is a lion in the way, a lion is in the streets. Yeah, they, they, they fear what might be, and so they do nothing. Proverbs 28 verse 1 says, The wicked flee when no man pursues. You know, the horror of the consequence of sin starts to, to come home here. He was as unto me as a bear lying in wait and as a lion in secret places. He has turned aside my ways and poured me in pieces. He has made me desolate. He has bent his bow and set me as a mark for the arrow. Can you talk about somebody who's good at hitting the target? They're referred to as a marksman. Jeremiah is saying, I've become the target. He's bent his bow and set me as the mark for the arrow. Okay, the next letter in the Hebrew alphabet, these three verses. He has caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. Reins, kidneys. The renal function, yeah? It's the reins. Maybe you see that in, particularly in the King James, it's a reference to the kidneys. It's interesting because the kidneys are there to purify. And the purifying function in Israel had ceased. There was no purifying function left. It says, he's caused the arrows of his quiver to enter into my reins. I was a derision to all my people and their song all the day. And Jeremiah is speaking here and you start to see a little bit of a shift because... Jeremiah, speaking on behalf of the people, then starting to express his own anguish. That for many years, Jeremiah had prophesied of what was coming. And the people laughed at him. And he became a song. Interestingly, Jeremiah saying this, and this song all the day, with Jesus in Psalm 69, prophetically we read there that he became the song of the drunkards. People mocked Jesus. They laughed at Jesus. They do so with Jeremiah, and they'll do so with us if we stand up for what is righteous and true. He has filled me with bitterness. He has made me drunken with wormwood. You know, think about this in in regard to Christ as, as well, because Christ has taken all of this upon himself for us. Bav, the next Hebrew letter, these three verses. He's also broken my teeth with gravel. The idea is you've fallen face down onto the ground and you're basically eating the stones. He has covered me with ashes, and thou has removed my soul far off from peace. I forget prosperity. <laughs> you know, it's kind of wish that a lot of the people in the church today would forget prosperity. So many people chase after things just from a material perspective or talk about the blessings we should be receiving or expect to receive and, and so on. We have, of course, the prosperity gospel and all this nonsense. You know, these kind of things put it in context. This is really just the covers removed. This is as it is. This is God and his perfection, his holiness, a man in his sin. And I said, my strength and my hope is perished from the Lord. I just want to read this to you, Bioswell Chambers. This is quite poignant in the context here he says no one experiences complete sanctification without going through a white funeral as Oswald Chambers puts it 
And he says, what he, what he means by that is the burial of the old life. If there has never been this crucial moment of change through death, sanctification will never be more than an elusive dream. There must be a white funeral, a death with only one resurrection, a resurrection into the life of Jesus Christ. Nothing can defeat a life like this. It has oneness with God for only one purpose, to be a witness for him. Have you come, have you really come to your last days? You have often come to them in your mind, but have you really experienced them? You cannot die or go to your funeral in a mood of excitement. Death means you stop being. You must agree with God and stop being the intensely striving kind of Christian you have been. We avoid the cemetery and continue to refuse our own death. It won't happen by striving, but by yielding to death. It is dying, being baptized into his death, as Romans 6 verse 3 tells us. He says, this is the will of God, your sanctification. Once you truly realize this is God's will, you will enter into the process of sanctification as a natural response. Are you willing to experience that white funeral now? Will you agree with him that this is your last day on earth? The moment of agreement depends on you. Oswald's not writing that to unbelievers. He's writing that to believers that would listen. Just as Jeremiah is coming to this place of just realizing his own frailty, his own emptiness, his own sin, and recognizing that, of course, in the sin of his people. But then Jeremiah coming to that point, almost, again, as Oswald Chambers puts it, coming to the end of yourself. The end of all of your desire to achieve or your dreams being laid aside. Just coming to that place of just total abandonment to God. And Jeremiah says this, remembering my affliction and my misery, the wormwood and the gall. My soul has them still in remembrance and is humbled in me. So Jeremiah is saying, I've been brought so low as I look at my own self. But then he says, this I recall to mind. Now, the Hebrew is more intense than that. It's saying, he's actually making a conscious effort to remember this because the natural just reminds us of the problem. It reminds us of our predicament. But he said, this I recall to mind. I have to put this in front of me. It just reminds us of what we read in the New Testament. I willingly choose to set our mind on these things. To set our mind on the things above. That's what we are to do. To be transformed by the renewing of our mind. But that's not something that just happens unless we give opportunity to it. He says, this I recall to mind. I am going to consider this. I'm going to set my mind on this. He says, therefore have I hope. And this is what he says. It is of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed. Because his compassions fail not. You see, he's realizing that, yes, we're in this predicament, but we haven't been totally consumed. God is a merciful God. And that is the Lord's mercies. It's not just single. This is a multitude of mercies. So many you can't count. Because his compassions, again, so much that you can't comprehend how great is the Lord's compassion. His compassions fail not. Jeremiah says they are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. He says the Lord is my portion, saith my soul. Therefore will I hope in him. You see, everything else stripped away. When we come face to face with, with who we are, forget all the material things, forget everything else about this life. When we come face to face with really who we are apart from Christ, we just want Christ. Again, it's because of his mercies, we are not consumed, you and I, this morning. How many times should God have just wiped us out? But he doesn't, because of his love, because of his grace, because of the blood of Jesus. Because they are new every morning. You know, every day we start with a clean sheet if we come to Christ and we confess our sin. They're new every morning. Every day we can start clothed in his righteousness. 
Great is thy faithfulness. And then the Lord is my portion. That is all that matters. It doesn't mean that tomorrow morning I'm going to get up and I'm not going to go to work. It doesn't mean that I'm not going to take responsibility for my family. But the Lord is my portion. Everything else is a distant second. The Lord, more important than anything in my life, saith my soul, therefore will I hope in him. 2 Corinthians 4, 8 to 10 says, We are troubled on every side, yet not distressed. We are perplexed, but not in despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. We're cast down, but we're not destroyed. Jeremiah is saying, I see God's mercy, I see God's compassion. And then he goes on. The Lord is good unto them that wait for him, to the soul that seeks him. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. And it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. In Luke twenty-one nineteen, it says, In patience possess ye your souls. Jesus said that. Now that was in the context of thinking about the last days. It's really hang on to those promises of God. It's good that a man should both hope and wait. You know, sin is always going to be there lurking, trying to pull us away. As it says in Hebrews, the sin that so easily ensnares us or besets us. It's always there. How do we deal with it? Because we have got our heads lifted up. We're looking to that day. We're looking for that day when not only will we be saved from the penalty of sin, but we will be saved from the very presence of sin itself as the Lord takes us home to be with him. And again, it's good for a man that he bear the yoke in his youth. It's great if we can get these things sorted out. If you, you take this upon you while you're young, but at any stage of your life, we have to come to this place. Yod, another group of three, starting with the same Hebrew letter. He sits alone and keeps silence because he has borne it upon him. He puts his mouth in the dust. If so, be there may, sorry, if so be, there may be hope. He gives his cheek to him that smites him. He's filled full with reproach. Jeremiah, speaking of himself here. Of course, Matthew 5, 39, we're instructed the same. But I say unto you that you resist not evil, but whosoever shall smite thee on thy right cheek, turn to him the other also. You see, no longer are we set about our own agenda. We're not bothered about our own reputation anymore. Once we come to this place, as Jeremiah has done, all that matters is the Lord's reputation. We're more concerned about his name than ours. The next group of three letters, uh, next, sorry, next, next three verses of this letter, calf here. For the Lord will not cast off forever. But though he caused grief, yet he will have compassion according to the multitude of his mercies. For he does not afflict willingly nor grieve the children of men. Again, just saying that God is righteous. Again, as we read earlier, my son despised not thou the chastening of the Lord, nor faint when thou rebuked of him, for whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Lamed, the next three. To crush under his feet all the prisoners of the earth, to turn aside the right of a man before the face of the Most High, to subvert a man in his cause, the Lord approves not of any of those things. Who is he that says, and it comes to pass, when the Lord has commanded it not? Now Jeremiah is starting to turn here because he's lamenting for the city. He's thinking about his own state, coming to God, realizing that God is a merciful, gracious and compassionate God. And then he's starting now to think about those that have personally afflicted him. And all those that said, oh, the Lord won't bring judgment. He's saying, who is he that says, and it comes to pass, when God has said exactly the opposite? Do you think if God's command is something, you can say something different and what you said will come to pass? It's so foolish. And yet the world today does those things all the time. Out of the mouth of the Most High proceeds not evil and good? Question mark. Wherefore does, in other words, won't God bring judgment as well as blessing? Because the people are saying that God won't bring judgment. Well, yes, he will, Jeremiah says. 
Wherefore does the living man complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. As we said a number of times before, there's going to be any soul in hell that will complain of injustice. Once everybody has had opportunity to stand before the great white throne judgment, that's those that are not saved, nobody will turn around and say, well, God wasn't fair. They will realize the extent of their own sin. Wherefore does a man, a living man, complain? A man for the punishment of his sins. When a man is brought face to face with this, as Jeremiah has done so here. Noon, the next Hebrew letter. Let us search and try our ways and turn again to the Lord. Let us lift up our hearts, our heart with our hands unto God in the heavens. I love this. Let's lift up our heart with our hands. There's a real effort in this unto God in the heavens. It's just totally exposed to God. And say, we have transgressed, we have rebelled. That was not pardoned. Jeremiah confessing the sin of his people. Thou hast covered with anger and persecuted us. Thou hast slain, thou hast not pitied. Thou hast covered thyself with a cloud that our prayer should not pass through. Thou hast made us as the offscourging and refuse in the midst of the people. Next three. And all our enemies have opened their mouths against us. Fear and a snare has come upon us, desolation and destruction. My eye runs down with rivers of water for the destruction of the daughter of my people. Now, as God lamented with tears the destruction of Jerusalem, I believe so he did the same when his own son bore our sin at Calvary. You know, there's so many of these things we can read in regard to Christ and what Christ has accomplished for us. That although this judgment is being placed upon these people, for us, all the wrath here that we're seeing was placed upon Christ. The last verse talk about rivers of tears. Now my eye trickleth down. It's almost as if you've cried so much you can't cry anymore, but yet you're still crying. And seeth is not without any intermission till the Lord looked down and behold from heaven. Salvation only comes from the Lord. It says, my eye affecteth my heart. The things that Jeremiah was seeing was breaking his heart because of all the daughters of my city. Saturday, the next group of three. My eye, sorry, my enemies chased me sore like a bird without cause. They have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over mine head and they said, I'm cut off. Would you just turn with me to the book of Jeremiah? To give you the context of this, Jeremiah chapter 38. I'm going to read to you. I'm going to go from verse 2 of Jeremiah 38. It says, Thus saith the Lord, this is what Jeremiah was speaking to the people. Thus saith the Lord, He that remaineth in this city shall die by the sword, by famine, and by pestilence. But he that goes forth to the Chaldeans shall live, for he shall have his life for a prey and shall live. What Jeremiah is saying is, If you want to make here home, you will suffer wrath and judgment. If you're prepared to go to the place the Lord has prepared for you, you'll be be spared wrath. And it's exactly the same message now. The Lord has gone to prepare a place for all those who put their trust in him. But those who want to make this place, this world their home, will suffer God's wrath and judgment. Verse 3, thus says the Lord, this city shall surely be given into the hand of the king of Babylon's army. We shall take it. Therefore the princes said unto the king, so these people have heard what Jeremiah said, the princes, they said, we beseech thee, let this man be put to death. For thus he weakens the hand of the men of war, as if they were going to do any good, that remained in the city, and the hands of all the people in speaking such words unto them. Saying, Jeremiah is really demoralizing everybody with these, these words he's saying. For this man seeketh not the welfare of his people, but the hurt. Oh, how can you say that? We've just seen the tears he shed for the people. Verse 5, Then Zedekiah the king said, Behold, he is in your hand. For the king, uh, sorry, for the king is not he that can do anything against you. It just shows how weak the king has become that these princes come to him and they get their way. So verse 6, They took Jeremiah and cast him into the dungeon of uh, Malchiah, the son of uh, Hamelech, and he, sorry, that he... uh, he was in the court of the prison. And they let down Jeremiah with cords. And in the dungeon there was no water but mire. So Jeremiah sunk 
in the mire. Josephus says that he sunk right up to his neck in this mire. Now, when Ebed-Melech, the Ethiopian, one of the eunuchs which was in the king's house, heard that they put Jeremiah in the dungeon, uh, the king then sitting in the gates of Benjamin, Ebed-Melech went forth out to the king's house and spoke to the king, saying, My lord the king, these men have done evil in that they have done to Jeremiah the prophet, whom they have cast into the dungeon. And he is like to, he is like to die for hunger in the place where he is, for there is no more bread in the city. Then the king commanded Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian, saying, Take from hence thirty men with thee, and take up Jeremiah the prophet out of the dungeon before he die. So Ebed-Melech took the men with him and went into the house of the king under the treasury and took thence um, old cast cloths uh, and old rotten rags uh, and let them down by cords into the dungeon to Jeremiah. And Ebed-Melech the Ethiopian said unto Jeremiah, Put now these old cast cloths and rotten rags under thine armholes, under thy cords, and Jeremiah did so. And so they drew Jeremiah with cords and took him up out of the dungeon, and Jeremiah remained in the court of the prison. That's what Jeremiah went through, and more. You know, they said during the Second World War, when people, uh, pilots who crashed or whatever, ended up in the water, if they stayed in the water for a couple of days, because the amount of uh, water that the skin absorbed, the skin became loose on, on your frame. And they realized that if they just dragged people out of the water, they could literally pull their skin off. A horrible situation. Jeremiah in his situation. So they lower these, these rags down so that carefully they bring him up. He's been in, we don't know exactly the time frame he was in there, but clearly a good number of days. Jeremiah here, this verse again. That have cut off my life in the dungeon and cast a stone upon me. Waters flowed over my head. And then I said, I am cut off. Jeremiah thought that was it. This is the end. But, look at verse 55. I called upon thy name, O Lord, out of the low dungeon. I mean, it would be so easy to blame God in this circumstance, but he doesn't. He cries out to God. Thou hast heard my voice. Hide not thine ear at my breathing and my cry. Thou drewest near in the day that I called upon thee. And thou said, fear not. God with Jeremiah in one of the lowest moments, physically and emotionally and spiritually, of his life. Actually, I say spiritually. Spiritually, at this point, Jeremiah is actually pretty strong. Trusting God. Psalm 34 tells us that the eyes of the Lord are upon the righteous. His ears are open unto their cry. The face of the Lord is against them that do evil, to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry, and the Lord hears, and delivers them out of all their troubles. The Lord is nigh unto them that are broken heart. And save such as be of contrite spirit. Many are the afflictions of the righteous, but the Lord delivers him out of them all. Great is his faithfulness. O Lord, thou hast pleaded the causes of my soul. Thou hast redeemed my life. O Lord, thou hast seen my wrong. Judge thou my cause. Thou hast seen all their vengeance and all their imaginations against me. And we come now to the last Two groups of verses, three, three verses each. Sheen, this Hebrew letter, the last three, here, yeah, penultimate three uh, verses. Thou hast heard their reproach, O Lord, and all their imaginations against me. The lips of those that rose up against me and their device against me all the day. Behold, they're sitting down and they're rising up. I am their music. I've become entertainment for them. Isn't that true of us as Christians? The world laughs at us, it chooses to mock us. You've only got to watch so-called comedy on telly, there's very few comedians that are actually very funny. Because most of them end up just trying to mock God or Christianity, the Bible, in one way or another. So often we see it. We've become their music, their entertainment. And so the last three verses, Tau, have this last letter in the Hebrew alphabet. Jeremiah says, Render unto them a recompense, O Lord. According to the work of their hands. You know, that's exactly what is going to happen during the tribulation, during the judgment that is to come for this world. They will be rendered according to the work of their hands. The great white throne judgment, everyone will be judged according to their works. Jeremiah says, give them sorrow of heart. Thy curse unto them. And then he says, persecute and destroy them. As if that wasn't enough, he says, in anger. 
but in a righteous anger, from under the heavens of the Lord. You know, that's coming for those that have rejected God, for those that will go into the tribulation. But there are still a multitude out there that can be saved. And and as we look at this, Jeremiah lamenting for his people, lamenting for those children. Let's pray the Lord stir our hearts to even more commit ourselves to reaching the lost before it's too late. Let's bow our hearts, shall we? Father, just thank you for this opportunity this morning to study these scriptures. And Lord, we just... Lord, it's incredible to look at this man, Jeremiah, and what he went through. Lord, that he did join with you in that suffering, Lord, that as you've called us to, Lord, be part of the same suffering that Christ endures, Lord, for those that are lost. Lord, give us a desire and a hunger to see those lost sheep saved. Lord, those that have gone astray. Lord, those that have never had parents to teach them. And Lord, those of our own children who have been taught but as yet have chosen not to listen. Oh, Father, we pray for mercy. We pray for that compassion because you are a faithful God. Lord, we pray that you would bring in a multitude because, Lord, all the things that came upon Jerusalem You have taken upon yourself for us. The wrath that fell upon that city. Lord, we have been saved and spared that wrath because we've put our trust in Jesus who took that upon himself. Lord, now there is a way to escape that wrath. And Father, help us to go out with this good news to this world in which we live. Lord, give us boldness. Give us confidence. May we not be ashamed of the gospel. But know that it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes. We ask these things this morning in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, may God richly bless you through this coming week as we continue to walk with him.